You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. If you'll be opening to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're in our study there. The guided tour that John is taking us on to belief. John 2, we'll begin reading a familiar story in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, it did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head, water, head waiter said to the groomsman, he said, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Well, this is our guided tour to belief and what's the result of this miracle. It says his disciples believed in him. So this is one of our 98, literally, 98 times in some form of belief is mentioned in the Gospel of John. Jesus' presence and power and compassion are all going to be greatly shown in this miracle. We also get a glimpse of Mary's fate, or Mary's faith, pardon, Mary's faith, and also I think something of the promise that there are better things still to come. So let's talk about Jesus turning the water to wine. Now, this is the one Bible story that every drunk knows. I don't think there's a preacher yet has ever not been told by somebody, you know, Jesus, he made wine. He made water into wine. I've had that conversation in multiple languages. I remember when I was in Lithuania one time, and uh, there was a drunk Russian not the start of a joke, it's actually the start of a real incident. Could, could have been a joke. But a drunk Russian came up and was talking to me and my friend. And I don't know a lot of Russian, but I heard the word Jesus and I heard the word wine in there. And I heard the response from my friend who said, yeah, but the Apostle Paul said, 
and I was I could guess which one of several passages from Paul my friend took our drunk Russian to. But just like every reprobate knows, judge not that you be not judged, every drunk knows that Jesus made water into wine. But you know, this is not their story. This is John's story to lead us to belief. And Jesus, at the conclusion of this, did not lead to people being luscious, but led people to be believing disciples. So this is our story. Now we're going to take this in two headings of power and compassion. Let's first start with the power. It is no surprise for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have come to the object which John is trying to direct us, that he could make wine. He could make whatever quantity of wine, because after all, normally who makes wine? Oh, I know winemakers are involved, but who's the one that set up the process and who's the one that gives them the ingredients? Who's the one that makes it so that grapes do that thing that grapes do? Who set that up? Well, it is he who made all things. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. So for those of us with faith that the one who made all the water and all the wine can change one to the other, that's not surprising at all, is it? Also, we think about the deliverance of the people in a parallel. There's a lot of parallels between the ministry of Jesus and the things of Moses, the exodus and the setting the people free to the promised land. There's a lot of parallels, many of them intentional, between the ministry of Jesus and, and, and that story. And, you know, Jesus will have his 40 days in the wilderness and, and other things uh, similar to well, events in Moses. Well, how do we start the plagues? Water to blood. So judgment on Egypt. Well, here it's a blessing for God's people. And how does the ministry of Jesus start? It's water to wine. And so this could go either way. The, the one who has the power to change the water to blood and curse us all is the same one who has the power to turn it to wine and bless us all. And so we believing that he can do that, we're not surprised that he does this here. As it says in verse 11, this was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed. It does strike me in a way that we use this text sort of backwards from how John used it. John says that Jesus turned water to wine. And what are you supposed to figure out from that? That he can do anything. We who believe and have been trained and hopefully we have taken deep into our hearts with trusting faith that he can do everything, what do we believe about this incident? Of course he did it. Because why? He can do all. So John showed the thing he could do and showed the thing he did do as proof of all that he can do. We, believing now so much later on, in all that he does, when we're told he did this, we say, of course we believe it. So in both cases, we, we end with belief. John tells us he did it so we can believe. We who now believe, when we're told he did it, we go, well, yes, of course he did. And one of the reasons why sometimes, and for some believers today, we have to believe that he did this based on the rest of everything that we know is because we have a bit of trouble at times conceiving of what Jesus did as a great blessing. 
because he just provided these people with 130, 40, 50 gallons of wine. Now, if I ask one of you folks, say, hey, uh, I'm going to need 100 gallons of wine. I got a thing coming up. Doug, you want to be the wine guy? You know, some of the more practical among you would just go, man, what's the budget for that? Uh, Jay, have you priced 150 gallons of wine? And I'd say, no, I have not priced 150 gallons of wine. I haven't even priced a bottle. I do know it's cheaper by the box at Costco, but that's just general cultural knowledge. But still, 150 gallons of the Costco stuff in a box. you got to have a budget. But we would say, Jay, why do you need 150 gallons of wine? Jay, why do you need one gallon of wine? Jay, why do you need one box? Jay, what about you and your wine? We, at times, have trouble viewing wine as a blessing. Now, I, I sort of wish, this is one of the few times I kind of wish I had the Catholic arrangement. A, a Catholic arrangement at the front of an auditorium or church or whatever, you, whatever word is the right word. They actually have two different places for the speaker to speak. They have a place for the preacher to give his homily, and then they have another podium off on the other side of the stage for the text to be read, for the reading of the gospel. And they don't mean just the four gospels, but they mean usually it's New Testament reading. So they have a lectern for reading, and they have a lectern for giving the homily, the bit of a sermon. I kind of wish at this point I could go to my, my, my alternative podium. Uh, not a soapbox, please. Not, it's not a soapbox. But I wish I had a little alternative podium for this mini lesson. That yes, we are very familiar with, and we can sing them almost like a hymn, recite them almost like a creed. All of the warnings about alcohol and wine and intoxicating things in Scripture. And they are all there. And, and those passages are, are uh, rightly used. But there's also another set of passages, uh, uh, maybe not quite as many as the warnings, but a lot of wine as a blessing. And we kind of need to go off into a mini lesson right now about that. And let, us, let it be known that, again, this is not the drunk's passage. This is not the passage going, hey, Jesus made water to wine, man. Yeah, I know. Wine in the Scripture is very often portrayed as a great blessing of God. That the faithful habit, by God's mercy and by God's grace, it is one of the gifts he gives to men. Uh, we're actually going to look briefly, and all of these will be brief, because this, this would be, and this is a sampling. I'll go ahead and show you this. This, on the blessing of wine, is a sampling of what is to come. It's also a sampling of the warnings. These are both samplings. This is a mini lesson. We actually have on the chart today the first three mentions of wine in the Bible. The second one is the priest, this is Genesis 14, the priest who is the head uh, and the type of the priesthood of Christ, because Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That priest, when he worshiped with the father of all the faithful, which is Father Abraham, in Genesis 14 and 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of God Most High, brought out bread and wine. So the fellow who is a priest of the head of the type of which Jesus is a priest, worshiping with the father of the faithful, brought out and they worship with bread and wine. I have to say, we were somewhat close to that this morning, were we not? Were we not? That's the second mention 
We'll mention the first, uh, the other of the first three. They're not good. They're in Genesis as well. But we have this, uh, Numbers 15, under the law, when there was the worship of God. Numbers 15, uh, 4 and 5. This is just one of the ways. There's a number of options listed of things you can bring, but they're all similar to this. It says, the one who presents, Numbers 15, 5, the one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephod of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen, with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. It gives you all these different kind of combinations of things to bring for burnt offering and wave offering and drink offering. And there's a bunch of them there in numbers and wine is is a common feature. Or this, uh, Deuteronomy 7. Uh, He will love you and bless you and multiply you. That's if you keep God's commandments in the land of which you're now being given. In the promised land, that land of milk and honey. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, and increase your herd and your flock in the land which he swore to give you to your forefathers, given to you. So blessings of the womb, blessings of the ground, blessings of the grain, blessings of the wine, of the oil, of the herd, of the flock, everything the agricultural man has on his little small holding where he gets to sit under his own what? His own vine. And what's growing on that vine? And where's that going to end up? That is the blessing of God. Jotham in Judges 9, uh, he tells a little parable to the nation. And he says, should I leave my new vine, which cheers God and men, and go do your business? I'm paraphrasing that last part. But, he, the, but the words, the, the new vine, and we know what the produce of the vine is, which cheers God and man. Or Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the provision of God. He waters the mountains, Psalm 104, 13. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and the food which sustains his heart. And so there again, the blessings uh, from the agricultural endeavors, the wine, the oil, and the food. Blessings of God. And one more. Uh, And again, we could multiply these, but but, uh, to the same effect. Proverb 3. You know this passage. Proverb 3, 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. I don't know how many times I've seen that on Facebook. I see this one on, Facebook, on social media a lot. Pictures of this passage. Lean, Don't lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's the part we normally quote. That's about how much fits on a nice picture and a decent sized font. That piece. But notice... The blessings would come if you do that. The blessings if you trust in the Lord and not lean on your own understanding. The blessing of trusting the Lord. It'll be healing for your body. 
and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from all your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be full with plenty. Again, the agricultural blessings. Oh, and your vats overflow with new wine. Overflowing vats. Now, when it comes out of the vat, it's new wine. We'll see this a couple of times. We'll see new wine. New wine is when it's first coming out of the vat. That was considered to be the greatest of blessing, and it's freshest, it's newest, it, it's, uh, it's the sweetest. It's often called this. Uh, now, new wine and sweet wine are often used interchangeably. One of the reasons it's called uh, sweet wine was because before the fermentation process had consumed so much of the sugars, the, uh, the, the wine, or, and they didn't have a different word for grape juice and wine. It's just one word. It was sweeter, and it had less alcohol in it. But there's only so much of that you can drink, right? There's a lot more coming out of that vat that you need right now. And when you store it, what happens to it? All those sugars get consumed. It's not as sweet as it was. It also becomes more alcoholic. And that's where we now have our danger. This blessing, this blessing of God, and he gives them such that their vats overflow, and there's plenty to store, right? Because, you know, you, you go to one of our houses today, because we can go to the grocery store every day or every second day or every fourth day, or some of us go once a month to the Costco or the Sam's and load it all up. But we just pretty much refresh the cabinets through the year. But if you're on an, you know, if you're on the calendar of agriculture, there's things you get at a certain time, right? And what do you do with all that excess? You can it, you preserve it, you jelly it, you, you, you know, you eat as much, you eat as much as you can until you're sick of it. You take a little bit of a break, and then you start going into what you set aside. So in the agricultural calendar now, we've had our overflowing vats as well as our overflowing other things, and now. What happens with that wonderful wine, that sweet wine that we had, that stuff can get a little more dicey, can't it? And that can have a, that can have a much stronger effect. And so now in Genesis 9, this is the first time we find wine in the Bible. The Melchizedek passage was the second. This is the first. Then Noah, what was he? A righteous man. And all the earth, the righteous man. I really think Noah was the righteous man and the rest of the family got in on the family plan on that ark business. But I don't know how many of them were righteous, but Noah certainly was. But Noah's a righteous man. And after the flood, what does he do? He began farming. He planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk. And he uncovered himself in his tent. And then his grandson and one of his sons got involved in the deal and something nasty and unseemly happened and some of them got themselves cursed didn't they and that was a bad effect of wine where the guy was at his house the whole time with family members you thought you thought wrongly but you thought you could trust another time with family and wine is our third mention of wine in the bible genesis nineteen thirty-two. come the daughters of Lot say, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. I do it one night and then they do it the next. The Bible has some beautiful stories of morality, some wonderful bedtime stories for the children. There are some other stories that are not. That's our first, second, and third mentions of wine in the Bible. <laughs> you talk about a mixed bag, right? A righteous man being 
getting drunk and something untoward happening to him by his family members taking advantage. Then the priest, uh, the head of Jesus' order, who worships with the father of the faithful, brings bread and wine. But then the next mention, again, it's right back to debauchery. This is the problem with wine. This is the problem with a blessing of God that becomes misused. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9, we have the story we know of Nadab and Abihu. We all know that, right? The priest who got fired. This is, see, I, the other day I was at a Cub Scout event, and it was, at, it was at a denominational church, and they had a big drum set over there in the corner, and this is where I wish I could turn to the drummer. Yeah, the priest who got fired. But what, does, what is the instruction? The instruction in the middle of that between the time that they die, they die and are buried, there's, there's an emergency instruction, it seems, given by Moses to Aaron. Don't drink wine or strong drink, neither you or your sons with you, when you come to the tent of meeting. Don't come to worship drunk. Why is that in the middle of the story of Nadab and Abihu? I, I think that be, being inebriated, I think probably had a lot to do with their strange fire offering. They weren't thinking right. They weren't thinking clearly. They definitely weren't thinking of the instructions they'd been given. That same thing is repeated in the captivity. In the captivity, this from Ezekiel the prophet, neither shall the priest drink wine when they enter the inner court. You know, you think it's a sad thing when you know some of these, and most, most of the ones I know are men, but these young men who ride around town on these 49cc moped motorcycle things, because Why? So I think they can drive without a license. Or they, they, they have a breathalyzer hooked up to their car. You know, any of these young fellows have breathalyzer hooked up to their car? Well, imagine here at the, pre, at the temple of God in Israel, you need a breathalyzer test before you can go off of the sacrifice. Drunkenness was a big part of the priesthood before the captivity. And Ezekiel says, we are cleaning that business up. From the Proverbs come this warning. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 23, 19, Listen, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, nor with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinkers and the gluttons will come to poverty, and the drowsiness will close you like rags. So what does it go on to say? Don't even look at wine when it sparkles in the cup. So we have this. One more from Isaiah Woe to those who rise up early in the morning. They may pursue strong drink. I saw that more than I could ever imagine when we lived, as I mentioned a while ago, in the former Soviet Union. Guys drunk on vodka falling off of park benches in front of our apartment building at 8.39 in the morning. I don't know if they got a real early start or just were continuing on from last night. But the sun's hardly up and they can't stand up. In the New Testament, we have, if anything, the most direct warnings. Do not get drunk with wine. Ephesians 5.18, this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with wine leaves no room for the Spirit. What are you going to fill your heart and your mind with? Galatians 5, the works of the flesh include drunkenness and carousing. 1 Corinthians 6.10, don't be deceived. All these people will not inherit the, God, inherit the kingdom of God. Not thieves, not covetous, not drunkards, not revilers not swindlers. I never thought of it, but I think maybe this is an apt comparison 
but it's also one that becomes very direct. And uh, you know me, I try to be sensitive in what I say. I, I think maybe the wine that God gives is a great and beautiful thing, very much like another great and beautiful creation of his of sexual relations within the confines of where God would have it used. It can be one of the most wholesome, beneficial, and enjoyable things possible. But outside of God's intended confines and abused and overused, it is disgusting, it is disruptive, it's just downright nasty when used indiscriminately. And so there's a lot of the blessing that the ancient world had from wine that we now can have in other ways without some of the dangers. And so as a course of wisdom, most of the faithful people I know do not drink at all or drink very little. That way we don't have to worry about are we drinking to excess or is it an indiscriminate use. We've all witnessed the indiscriminate and overuse. One more passage on this morning. Isaiah 28, 7. These are those who reel with wine and they stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel having visions and they totter rendering judgments. For all the tables, the tables, are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. If you don't start to drink, you won't end up there. So, wine. Great blessing, used rightly and properly. Jesus blesses this couple with an abundance of, as the head writer says, this is the good stuff. This is the good wine. Jesus blesses them with that when they lacked, when they're going to have this disaster uh, socially. Also, in, in, in studying about these passages on wine this week, I found one I did not know about. Uh, you know, it's one of these things. Have we all read the Bible? We've all read the Bible. We've all read it multiple times. But there's so much there, it doesn't all stick. And so sometimes we run across gems like they're new to us. And this, this I came across as if it were new to me this week. A, a prophecy which has some very familiar words in it from Isaiah 25. And I think this incident starts to fulfill this prophecy, which is obviously going to be fulfilled in the greater ministry and work of Christ. Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on his mountain. Uh, how many times has Jesus compared the kingdom to a feast, right, where everybody's invited? But he says, you people who should have come, you didn't come, right? These, the, the, the kingdom as a banquet metaphor is strong in the Gospels. So notice this, this, this lavish banquet, Isaiah 25, 6, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, so the best wine and the best food. And it mentions again, refined aged wine. So two different classes of wine. You think about these people today who specialize in wine, these sommeliers, and they, this one goes with this meat, and this one goes with this. It's like, you know, whatever. I've never had any of it, I wouldn't know. 
But there are people who specialize in that. Well, here the Lord is preparing his banquet, and he's got all the best things to eat and drink matched up. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the coverings, uh, which is over all people, even the veil which is stretched over the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe every tear from all faces. We know that from Revelation, don't we? Revelation 7. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God in whom we have waited that he might save us. This is Jehovah for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. We recognize several phrases out of this prophecy, right? We recognize several things here. It is fulfilled in the, in the total totality of the work of Jesus. But this lavish banquet with the aged wine, the refined aged wine, I think it started to be fulfilled where people could see it on this day where Jesus brought out and made for them the good wine that everybody could see and everybody could tell as soon as it was out there, hey, this, is, this isn't like what we had before. Something's different here. What's different here? Jesus is different here. Our second heading, compassion. The compassion in this. And this is why it's so much more than just, it's not Jesus giving lushes more to booze on. It's not that. Although everybody who says it with a slur, that's what they mean. No, it's not that. It's the compassion of Jesus in all things. First off, the compassion of his presence. Jesus has just begun his earthly ministry, the most important ministry in the history of humanity. And where did he spend his first days in his ministry? With some friends or relatives or cousins or I don't know who, but somebody, somebody who's close enough to him that they invited his mother to a thing. You know, they know all of y'all if they invite you and they invite mom, right? They, they, they know the whole clan if mom got invited too. Right, So this is somebody that's close to them, enough that mom is there. And Jesus, is, Jesus has had these disciples now for how many days? How did this thing start on the third day? He's had a couple of these disciples for just a couple of days. And Jesus says, yeah, y'all come too. So he's close enough to these people. They invite him and his mom, and he's, he's allowed to invite more guests. And he spends the beginning of his ministry with these families and friends. And so following Jesus did not then and does not now require social isolation. Don't we sometimes think that's the way to purity? Just to be away from everything and everybody? Oh, there's sinners over there. can't go there. Oh, there's sinners over there. Where you, if you went over there too. Actually, I, I, I stay alone in the room and what's my problem? There's a sinner trapped in here with me. So no, it's not about that kind of a pursuit of holiness, holiness by isolation. So Jesus and his family are there, and he's there at this thing, which to this couple, this would have been one of the most significant events in their lives. And here is Jesus during the time of his ministry. He's spending it there with them. I've always, in many ways, thought of this as kind of a small stakes miracle. And maybe, as Matt pointed out, as we talked about this earlier this week, maybe that's just my male cluelessness on display I'm sure that is displayed well and often but it's just for it just so seems so small stakes to me that this is where we have a miracle we have these unknown people 
in this tiny place. Cana is so insignificant, we're not sure where it's at. There's four different candidates for the village that was Cana. All of them are somewhere between 8 to 12 or 15 miles from Nazareth. That one we know where it's at. <laughs> not that if it hadn't been for Jesus being from there, there wouldn't have even been a souvenir stand to find, but that's what's there. So there is a place that's officially designated as Cana, but we're not sure if that's really the one that was the right one or not. But none of these are big places. So it's a little out-of-the-way place with a family that's not even named. And it's not the whole town, it's just this one family. And even though they might have invited a large part of the village over at some part or another for parts of the, for parts of the uh, wedding feast, is it just that big a deal? I mean, yeah, to the bride to the family of the bride, to the groom, uh, this would have been a big deal. This would have been an absolute social disaster. And you know, it's amazing. So often we get from Christians either indirectly or sometimes just right directly where they'll say, I don't care how you feel. Uh, Jesus did. Jesus felt uh, these people's need. Jesus understood that this was a big deal for them. And we find... Mary shows uh, the compassion first. We find Mary's care. But Mary uh, is close enough to this family that, again, she's there with her her children, and she uh, feels comfortable telling the servants what to do. So, again, it must have been somebody something close to Jesus in some way. But she comes and alerts Jesus. Coming, well, I picture her coming from the back, letting him know what's not common knowledge yet, that, hey, uh, they're out of wine, verse 3. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? Now, that doesn't sound particularly loving and caring, as I just made the point of Jesus' care and compassion. And the, 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 the short statement that Jesus makes, and it's an idiomatic statement, it li- quite literally means, uh, what to me and what to you? That would be the literal words. What to me and what to you? What is it? And also addressing her as woman. In English, that comes off as demeaning. In ancient usage, it was not. It was common. It's how Jesus addressed Mary when she was at the cross, or he was at the cross, and she was there watching. And he's telling her to go live with John. He addresses her in the same way. And so it, it's not <laughs> a, a dismissive thing. But sometimes when it's translated and given to us, it seems that way. And this idiom of, what do you mean? Or what, what is that, how does that concern us? Or how, is that our business? Um, that can kind of come, a lot, come across as a little callous too. But we notice Mary's reaction to what Jesus said. Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. So she understands he's about to do something. She has come to him to fix a problem. And she understands he's going to fix the problem. She doesn't know how he's going to fix it. But he's going to fix it. And sometimes, doesn't that need to be our approach to Jesus? Jesus, we got a problem here. And we don't know how he's going to fix it. Uh, Do you think anybody thought that's what he's fixing to do? If it was me, you know, Jesus shows up with these uh, these disciples, probably all, you know, young, handsome, fit men. Well, I don't know about handsome, but 
um, the least young and fit men, right? Send them to go get something. That, right? Would that that would that that'd be a pretty normal way to handle things? So, hey, Jesus, you got a bunch of dudes. Can can your dudes go help us out? But I don't think anybody was thinking. Even Mary, I think he's just going to make 150 gallons of the best wine we've ever seen. But she says to the servants, just whatever he says, do that. That's a good attitude we need to have. Now, he also said there in verse 4, he said, woman, what does that have to do with us? Or the international standard says this. It says, how does that concern us, dear lady? I like that better, but how does that concern us, dear one? And he says, my hour's not yet come. First time this shows up. We won't pause for a mini-sermon on that because we'll deal with that with the time coming in chapter 7, 8, 11, and 12. The coming hour is a major theme in John, and this is where it's introduced. And as soon as Jesus does a public miracle, it's almost as like the clock starts. And we're going to have, and we're going to be on an intentional movement toward the cross. That ultimate confrontation, that rejection, the, the, the death of Jesus for us all is the Lamb of God and the salvation that's going to come. All that is going to be set in motion and get its public start as soon as he does something publicly. And this miracle will be his first public miracle. So this is the kickoff of it. This is what starts moving things in that direction. And we'll save more for the hour to come when the hour comes. Lastly, Jesus' care and provision. It's not his problem, but he generously takes care of it. He puts himself out toward everybody as one buddy who now is a miracle worker. You know, his, his days of quiet, his days of anonymity, they're over. He's stepping out. This is, this is, it was their wedding, but in some ways it's his coming out party. And he makes for them not a little but a lot of what the head waiter says, this is the good stuff. He said, you don't put this in the back. You bring this out first when everybody can tell exactly what it is and just how good it is. And he makes 150 gallons-ish because there's multiple water pots, 25, 30 gallons each. And again, I just think, what would the, you know, if this family had tried to provide that, the, the budget would have never allowed. But how many times does Jesus give us blessings that we get directly through him or indirectly through him and his other disciples and his other faithful people? How many times do we get things in Christ of which our budget would have never allowed? I couldn't have afforded that. I couldn't have done that. No, here, it's a gift. It's from me. It's from God. And so he helps these people. And he shows, as it says, his glory. He manifested his glory. In the miraculous acts, certainly. But in the compassion and care for people as well. And he causes by this people to believe. And so for that lush who comes in and says, Jesus made water into wine, man. They got the worst, most diminished view of this miracle they could possibly have. Their takeaway from this is, wine's a good thing, let's just have more of it. I could almost write a country song with that, couldn't I? But that's a diminished view of the blessing. That's a diminished view of the whole thing. It's Jesus' care. And Jesus being there to show the care. Jesus generously giving. Jesus using the power of God to help people out. Isn't that the whole story of the gospel? 
the miraculous power of God to help people who needed it to help them out. Here he helps them out with a physical problem. In a couple of years, he's going to be the sacrifice for these people's sins and the sins of the whole world. And so, as John says in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. We couldn't be there to see it. But through John, we can read about it. And why does he tell us this story? So that we, like they, might believe and be his disciples. With that, we'll close. Having our consideration of water to wine, it's setting and meaning. No, the preacher didn't say go pour one on. The preacher said think about what God really gives, how he gives, and his generous nature to us, even when we're undeserving. With that, we'll close. If you need to come to the invitation today, confessing Jesus or confessing sin, we'd ask you to come to him as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.